Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning and your presence here with us and your life and your spirit that gives us hope and guides us. We ask, Jesus, that you would continue to move by opening our hearts to receive from your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, in Eugene Peterson's book, Tell It Slant, which is about Jesus' parables and his prayers, he says the prodigal son parable is probably the most well-known parable, which is true. I think even people who aren't Christians or maybe haven't been to church might know something of the prodigal son or know the term uh, Good Samaritan, which is probably another uh, most well-known parable. But the parable that follows, the parable of the dishonest manager, which Rob has just read, is probably gets the prize for the least known parable. In fact, I don't know if I've heard a sermon on it. I'm not sure. And part of that is because it's a really weird story. It's really strange. It actually, it sounds like Jesus is commending a thief for being a thief. And people have puzzled over it for years trying to find, like, what's the good moral nugget, right, to take out of it, which is maybe easier said than done. And so this morning... I wanted to ask, what's this parable about? What's it actually say to us today? And I want to suggest the parable teaches us three things that are helpful for our lives today. And those three things are it points to grace, to gumption, and to guidance. God extends unmerited grace. Jesus calls his disciples to have a certain gumption in how they live their lives. And we're also called to heed God's word as a guide in difficult situations. So let's, let's break it down and we'll, we'll go to each of those in turn. First thing, let's look again at the details. If you have your Bible open, turn to Luke 16 once again. We have a manager and we have a master. And so I'll be referring to them as manager and master throughout uh, the sermon. The manager is really, in a sense, something of a rental estate manager, right? He looks after what these debtors owe to the master. And the debtors are various farmers who pay uh, for their rent in kind, right? With oil or with wheat. And we saw that in the passage. And the manager is meant to keep track of all of that for his master. And we find out early on that the manager is embezzling. He's taking some of the money for himself or the goods for himself off the top. And the master fires him on the spot. That's sort of how the parable opens, right? And notice the manager doesn't protest. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, no, I'm innocent. Uh, he's likely guilty. This isn't a, an issue of someone being blamed. You know, he's innocent and he's been blamed uh, wrong. No, he, he's, he's the bad guy. He's dishonest about it. And he doesn't even try to get his job back, right? So what he does, he's like, uh, no, I'm, I'm guilty. <laughs> but now what do I do? And so he starts to ask, what should I do next? Should I dig ditches? No, I'm no good at digging ditches. Could I beg? No, I'm not really into begging. Who's going to hire him, right? Because he's lost his reputation or will soon lose his reputation. No one knows yet. He's just been fired. And then an idea hits him, but we're not really told what it is right away. Look at verse 4. He says, I've decided what to do. But he, it, we don't find out till just a little bit. There's a bit of a tension there. So what has he discovered? Well, I think he realizes, yes, I've been fired but I wasn't sent to jail for stealing, right? He, I've, I've been let go, but the master actually didn't ask me to pay back what I'd stolen. In a sense, my master's just, he fired me because I should have been fired, 
But he could have been way worse. Way worse. In fact, my master is just, but he's also been really generous to me. Hang on. And it's the master's generosity that he then plots his new plan on. So what does he do? He works very quickly before anyone realizes he's been turned out. And he calls in the first one who owes his payment to the master, right? What do you owe? He says. And of course, the debtors are used to dealing with the manager. They just think, well, he's doing his job. He goes, well, what do you owe? And he says, I owe 100 jugs of oil. And he goes, okay, sit down, quick, just write out for 50. And the guy thinks, brilliant. I don't have to pay 100. Awesome. And then the manager turns to the other guy. He goes, how much do you owe? And he says, I owe 100 sacks of wheat. And the guy goes, just do 80. And if I was there, he'd go, wait, you just let that guy get 50. How come I don't get 50? I have to do 80. But anyway, the debtors assume the manager is doing this because his master, they think, has approved it, right? They think, well, this is just what the master's done. Brilliant. They've approved a lesser rental fee. It's like a bonus. And so the debtors are like, this, this is awesome. This master's amazing. They're delighted. And in the process, this dishonest manager wins the affection of the people. So back when he said in verse 4, I've decided what to do. Notice it said, so that people will still receive me into their houses. He's done what he can to secure relationship and community. And we've talked a little bit this morning already, even as we've, uh, as we've blessed the Parr family and recognized the importance of their family in a community and, and wishing them well as they head into a new community, that their family would be a blessing there. In the same way, we all long for relationships and community where we can feel loved and welcomed and thrive. And this guy, even though he's dishonest, that's what he's going for at the end of the day, isn't it? He's longing to make sure he still has a relationship with people that he will get invited into their homes. Even though he's dishonest, he's longing for authentic relationship in some sense. I think that's so interesting. I think so often, though, we may, may discover that the way we have done something isn't the best. Underneath it, there was really good intentions, right? And that's what this guy is doing here. He uses his skill and his shrewdness, this is what the master calls it in verse 8, his shrewdness to make sure others still like him. But the plan only really works because his master actually is a fairly generous guy, right? If the master wasn't generous and he said, hey, instead of 100, now you only owe 50, they'd be like, no. Our master would not do that. You're crazy, right? That's, that doesn't make sense. But they trust the manager, and the generosity seems to make sense. It fits with the master's character. And the manager knows that because he's just experienced something of generosity from the master himself. So what happens when the, when the master finds out about this manager's plan, all of his dishonesty and his shrewdness? Well, you would think, Jesus, that you would say, what a terrible guy, and maybe he'd get justice for what he deserves, but that's not how Jesus' parable goes, and it's frustrating. Instead, in verse 8, the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And it's like, Jesus, come on now. Are you saying that you're commending dishonesty? That this shrewdness is more important than being upright? Of being upfront about things and no that's not quite the case the master has a choice when he discovers what's going on right 
He discovers the manager's a crook, and then uh, basically cheats him out of more before he, before the word gets out. The master has a choice. He could go back to all those debtors and say, I'm sorry, the manager made a mistake. Actually, you owe the extra 50 or the extra 20 or whatever it is. You owe all of that. And that would make the debtors pretty angry with him because they just thought, you, this master's brilliant. He's generous. And then, you know, he shows up and says, I've made a big mistake. You owe way more. Or the master could not say anything. And he could accept the praise of the debtors who think that he's cutting them a deal. And he could let the dishonest manager off the hook. Why on earth would he do that? He does it so that this dishonest manager will experience unmerited grace. Grace that he doesn't deserve. And so the master thinks it over. And in a sense, the manager, though he's being very deceptive, is actually complimenting the master because the master really is generous and merciful. This is the sort of thing he would do. So rather than this being a story about a crook being celebrated as a crook, it's really a story about a crook realizing his master's generous grace. And though he still doesn't get it fully, he uses what skills he has to get ahead in a difficult situation. And it's about a master who is willing to extend unearned grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. In the message paraphrase of Luke 68-9, it's, it's translated this way. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself and his future. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said to them, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Not for what's dishonest, but for what is right. So what does this parable have to teach us? First, it's really similar to the parable of the prodigal son. We have a character who's lost, who's broken, and he encounters unmerited grace in the same way the younger son encounters grace through the father. Here, the dishonest manager actually experiences grace from the master who could have done so much worse to him even though he deserved it he doesn't and in the same way we too can experience grace even in our brokenness and even in our dishonesty that while we were still sinners Christ died for us that God loves us even in our brokenness even before we're willing to repent he is still carefully generously extending his grace to us and we receive that gift of grace because of who god is not because we've earned it ephesians 2 5 says when we were dead in our trespasses god made us alive together with christ by grace you've been saved while we were dead in our trespasses god made us alive while we were still dishonest managers God came to make us alive with his forgiveness and his grace. And so that's the first point. It's this reminder that God still truly loves us even when we're really broken and bruised and kind of make a mess of things like this guy. He does love us and he extends that grace and that forgiveness to each and every one of us. And he calls us to come out of that sin, to come out of 
out of our brokenness into life and into holiness. So that's the first point is grace, God's grace. Grace that can cleanse within, right? Grace that's greater than all our sin, we would sing, right? God's grace. But the second thing is what Jesus does with the story is he calls his disciples to be clever and discerning. And what I, what I want to call it is a certain gumption. Gumption is defined as that shrewdness or spirited initiative or resourcefulness. That's gumption. And that's the thing that both the master commends and the dishonest manager, but it's also what Jesus calls his disciples to do. He's not saying the dishonesty is good, but he's saying the gumption of the dishonest manager was good. His willingness, his shrewdness, his spirited initiative, his resourcefulness to do what best he could with a really difficult situation. And Jesus calls us to do the same to learn to have gumption, to use what's before us for the kingdom of God, for his goodness and for God's righteousness, for God's glory, not for ourselves. And Jesus says by the end of the parable regarding money, even our resources are not really for our own benefit, but we can use those to uh, pursue God's kingdom, God's righteousness. When those earthly things fail, May you be received into eternal dwellings. And so rather than focusing on our own material possessions for our future, Jesus calls us to use whatever wealth we may have in a generous way, to use it to love others, which the Pharisees have a hard time with, right? That's how that verse 14 ends. They loved their money, they heard all that, and they ridiculed him. And that's the, the end of that passage. Jesus ends with that statement, you can't serve God in money. When it comes to your finances, you have a choice. You can be directed by them and likely be consumed by them, or you can use them to further God's kingdom and serve Jesus first with a certain gumption, with a shrewdness, with an intellect, with an initiative, a resourcefulness to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So the first point is grace, God's grace, unmerited, undeserved, to this dishonest manager is so similar to the grace we receive in our own lives, in our own brokenness. And now gumption, Jesus says, having, been, having received his grace, live in it, do something with it, work for the glory of God's kingdom. And then the third point is guidance. And I say guidance because I think this whole passage in some sense deals with the reality of change or the reality of transition in a person's life. Jesus makes this point. He says we can serve ourselves or we can serve God and his kingdom. All of us have that choice every single day. Who will we serve? Author and pastor Paul Tripp, he puts it this way. He said when it comes to kingdoms, there are really only two choices. With every choice decision or action, you live out of a deep heart allegiance to the kingdom of self or to the kingdom of God. I'm not saying you're always conscious of this or that your decisions are intentionally kingdom driven. What I'm saying is that with everything you do, you're either serving the purposes of God or the desires of self. The purposes of God or the desires of self of self? What kingdom 
do we serve? God's kingdom and his purposes or our own purposes? And God's kingdom, of course, finds its basis in his word and his will for us and his world, his creative and redemptive work in his world. But the kingdom of self, well, we all know what the kingdom of self is about, I guess. Our own our own opinion or agenda, what I would rather do or not do, first and foremost with my life. It's easy to pursue the kingdom of myself. Sometimes it's hard to lay those things down, to put God first, isn't it? See, the dishonest manager, he encounters a, a, real, a real transition in his life, right? I mean, he loses his job, right? So something that's fairly stable, something that he was good enough at that he felt he could be dishonest in and get away with it, right? So he's fairly comfortable in this job. He loses that. It's taken out from under him. Something very stable in his life gets upended. And how will he respond to that? And in the same way, we might ask, how do we respond when something stable in our own lives feels upended? When we get the call about a diagnosis, or we get word about a loved one and something's happened, or maybe we lose finances, or maybe we lose a job like this guy does, or something changes significantly and life feels upended, how do we respond? And just as Jesus says, hey, if this guy has the gumption to pull it off and make the best of it, how much more can you as disciples do it for what is right? There's a similar theme there as well when it comes to navigating change. If this dishonest guy can make the best of a difficult situation, how much more as disciples of Jesus are we called to seek the good even in the difficult situations we encounter? And we encounter all kinds, right? There's difficult situations around us all the time. And I think of the guidance of God's Word in those various circumstances. Maybe we feel unsure about which way we're to go in life. Maybe you thought life was going in one direction, and now it's changed. You thought you were moving, and you're not moving. You thought you were going to get married, and you're not getting married. You thought you were going to be in this marriage forever, and now it's falling apart. Or you thought, I'm going to live here forever, and now you're not, and something's changed. And maybe we're struggling with anxiety or uncertainty about that. But God's Word gives us clear guidance in the midst of those transitions. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. God's guidance in the midst of transition. When we're frustrated and wondering about our own sin and feeling overwhelmed with guilt or shame, God has told us clearly what we're to do and what we can hold on to. In 1 John, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we do when we're feeling frustrated with our church community and we think, I don't really feel like going anymore, I'm just kind of done, right? God's told us clearly what we're to do. Hebrews 10 says, Let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Sometimes we can wonder, God, what am I supposed to do in this situation? God's spoken. 
It's not a question of, God, will you speak? It's a question of, will I listen? Will I seek first his kingdom or the kingdom of self? Right? Here's another example of where frustrated at a fellow Christian, right? Which happens when you're in churches and you're around each other and we rub shoulders with each other and get on each other's nerves, right? God's told us what we're to do. Colossians 3 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. How do we respond in the transitions in our lives? If the dishonest manager can figure things out on his own, how much more can we as believers and disciples of Jesus with God's word as our guide navigate those difficult circumstances when they arise? Not that it's easy, but we know where to go for help. And we can decide how we'll respond, putting God's kingdom first or putting our own selves first. And this parable reminds us that even the bad guy can use his own cunning to make the best of this situation, right? How much more can we trust in Jesus who calls us with his grace and his love to live that out for him? And so we can ask, Lord, would you help me to respond to this change well in my life? When something comes, like for this dishonest manager and and his job's taken out from under him, when that sort of crisis happens in that sort of crucible of change, we're often tempted not to pursue God. We're tempted to pursue ourselves, our own kingdom, our own security. We can say, Lord, help me to respond well to this. Give me courage. Give me wisdom. Help me to follow you even if I've been wounded by this thing. Sarah and I went through a really wounded season in our lives um, when a can't get into the details, but uh, when we were really hurt by Christians, shock, shock and awe. Um, uh, it was before I was pastoring, so it was a little bit ago. And we chose, we could have chosen. It's easy to choose. Done with this. Done with this. Right? Done with you all. You're all terrible. Just bitter at everybody. It's real easy to do that especially because the person that hurt us was in Christian leadership. So it's really easy to be like, you should know better, you know, <laughs> just get angry. Uh, it's really easy to foster that anger. In fact, I remember other friends who were also hurt, and it became really easy to sit around and talk about how hurt we were with each other and how mad we were with this person. It was really easy to do that. And a friend of mine who was much wiser and much more patient said, I, I choose not to do that. I'm not going to throw spears back at Saul, even though he's thrown spears at me. Because David doesn't throw spears back at the king. And so I decided, okay, instead of being bitter and using the time with my friends to basically vent, but it was basically gossip angrily about other people, instead I'm going to choose to try and forgive this person even though I know they won't understand what they did is wrong. And that was really hard. But God was so faithful to lead us through that process. And even though we were wounded, God, in that woundedness, taught us a lot about ourselves and about Him. So much so that I would say I wouldn't 
change what happened, even though it hurt a lot. I mean, we've had four kids, and they are delightful and wonderful, but man, there was a lot of pain to get them, mostly on Sarah's part. But it's also hard watching your wife go through it. Just because something's painful doesn't mean it can't also bring life and goodness. Every, every delivery of a baby shows us that. Just because it hurts doesn't mean it can't be good. And sometimes we go through incredible changes or transitions in our lives like this guy does. And even though we can face the temptation to pursue ourselves, if we put God first, he will transform that mourning into dancing. He will transform that sorrow into joy. And he will redeem the brokenness for his own glory. He can take what the enemy meant for good and use it for his redemptive purposes. Sometimes in the middle of it, it's hard to see that. But we can still ask, Lord, in this place where I am feeling hurt or where I am needing to experience your grace or where I don't know what to do and I need the gumption to choose to live for you, God, would you help me to walk in that sense of your love to hold my plans and, and options openly before you to walk in unity and forgiveness with others as best as I can even though I struggle and fail to do that and we can choose each day to live that reality out the kingdom of God even though we may fail along the way or to choose the kingdom of ourselves and we do that when we like the prodigal son and like this dishonest manager, become aware again that they are living in the goodness and grace of a God who doesn't deserve to give them grace, who, who we don't deserve to have his grace, and yet he gives that to us. And because of God's grace, he calls me to have a gumption to follow him, to follow his guidance and his word, even if I don't always like what it says, and to work for his kingdom because he's extended his kingdom to me. So let's pray to that end as we close today. Jesus, I thank you for the experience of your grace in our lives, for your heart, Lord, that reaches out to the lost and to the broken and who continues to reach us out to us, even us who seek to follow you, Lord, in our ongoing brokenness. We need to be reminded of the grace that transforms us, that cleanses us. Lord, having experienced and known your grace, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and indeed the gumption, Lord, to live that out for you and to live that out in all the places you plant us, at work and at home, in marriage, in family life, in, in business, in school. As our kids start to head back to school soon, Lord, would we have the gumption, the courage to put you first, to seek your kingdom first in our lives, Lord. And Jesus, when we encounter hard transitions like this guy does, here's an example of a guy who, who uses his own strength to find a way through. But Lord, you say we can trust in you and you will hold us and guide us through difficult times if we'll follow you. So Jesus, we thank you for the guidance of your word that calls us to forgiveness when we're broken and calls us to unity when we feel disunified and, and calls us to trust in you when we feel anxious, that calls us to forgiveness and assurance of salvation when we feel dirty and broken and lost in our sin. 
Lord, you've spoken through your word. May we respond to it as you call us to. Jesus, I thank you for the grace that you've extended to each one who's here. And, and Father, I pray this morning, if there's any here who have heard the message of your grace, that you came, you died on the cross for our sins to set us free, to forgive us, to lead us into new life. If there's any here, Lord, who have not accepted you as their Savior, today, Father, would you draw them to yourself. May we all choose to make you first and foremost in our lives, Lord, to have that gumption to follow you, to lay the kingdom of self at your feet and choose your kingdom. Lord, to say, I put you first in my life. I take you as my Savior. You're my Lord. You're the one I serve. God, help me to live that faithfully. And when I fail along the way, would you pick me up, Lord, and show me the way in which I am to go. Jesus, I thank you that your spirit is here this morning. We thank you for a beautiful time of worship and for your word through the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation, Lord. We thank you for that. We say more, Lord. More, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for, for the community and the gift of prayer and the ability for us to surround each other. Jesus, we pray that you would knit us together as your body, especially as we head into this fall. Lord, that you would go before us, that you would guide us and help us to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And for those that are here today that are struggling, Lord, would you come with your grace and your goodness to each one and bring your healing and your life, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'd love to speak a benediction over you before you go. And if you'd like uh, any additional sort of prayer this morning or something personal on your heart or there's a need in your life or in your body and you just like prayer, we'd love to take some time to pray with you before you go. So don't feel you've got to rush away. Children of God who are loved and who are forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know the gift of God's grace in your life. That unmerited grace that he extends to the worst of sinners that he's extended to each of you. May you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the gumption to live for him with initiative and boldness and joy to follow Jesus. And when times are tough and you go through difficult transitions in life and changes, may you rest in the guidance and the assurance of the word of God as he speaks and calls us to himself. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. I do love you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Bless you.